Good job, guys. I don't know which way you go either, man. It's great. Good morning. It's good to see you. That's, by the way, why they didn't have acolytes when I was a kid is because it would have been out of hand. They wouldn't want me to handle fire in church, I think is basically the thing. Um, my name is Scott Hare, and I get to be the pastor out at your daughter congregation called Riverside out on the far north, uh, the edge of the hill country in San Antonio. Uh, it's a privilege always to be here with you. For those of you that I don't know, uh, it's nice to be with you. And for those of you uh, that I do know, it's good to be home. And uh, thank you for welcoming me. Me, as always. Would you join me? We say the Shema each week. It is something that Jesus would have said three times a day. It's a piece of who he was. And as much as we seek to be like him, when we say this, we're also saying to God, make us like him. We say it as a community because we are as body, the Jesus that we hope to be. So say it with me. I'll say a bit, then you'll say it back, and then we'll finish it together as it is printed in your bulletin. We say it together. I say it first. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, and together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. The words today come from Deuteronomy 13, beginning at verse 6 through 11. Listen carefully to the word of the Lord. If your very brother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife that you love, or your very closest friend, secretly entices you, saying, Come, let's worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of those that are around you, from near or from far, from one end of the land to the other Do not yield to them. Do not listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them. Do not shield them. For surely you are to put them to death. These are the words of the Lord. You may be seated. You may be seated. So there's a cheerful scripture to start your Sunday morning, right? Woohoo! David heads to Africa and leaves me with here. Just do this one, okay? What? Deuteronomy, an incredible journey, isn't it? I mean, you see so much and so rich and, and knowing that it's Jesus' favorite book. I mean, he quotes it more than any other book. And I, 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 can, I can imagine him reading this. I wonder what his heart was like when he did. I know what mine is like. One of the, my favorite stories or, or lessons really comes from the, the ancient rabbis. And they talk about uh, how Jacob goes out and he fights the angels, wrestles the angel all night long. Remember that? I remember um, uh, listening to a person teach and said, you must read the whole Bible. And I thought, the whole Bible? And I started reading these kinds of things, and I realized they left some stuff out in Sunday school. And I also realized what he said next was true. He said, listen, when you read the whole Bible, you need to remember the story of Jacob wrestling. Because if when you come to the text, you don't feel two things. One, that you're wrestling. And two, You must come away different, come away changed as he limped away from the wrestling match that he had. 
And I thought to myself, really, that's the best picture of what it means to study, to engage God's Word, is to wrestle with Him over it. And so surely this morning we come together to wrestle with one of the most difficult texts in the Scripture. Uh, I, I was... The thing that it brings up to me, and I don't know if it brings up the same thing up to you, is when I, when I hear God say stuff like, uh, kill these people that are closest to you. Kill them if they try to entice you away from me. I have a problem. What I wanted to do, and my, my sweet wife wouldn't let me, she goes, no, no, that's terrible, is what I wanted to do is have a, a, on these screens pictures of my whole family. Mostly so that you and I could see how personal this is. And say, look, here is my two-year-old son, Kylan. He's a toddler. If when he grows up, he entices me away from my faith, it says here in Scripture that I'm supposed to kill him. I didn't want to back off of that, spiritualize it too much. But to actually face it head on and say, let's together go and wrestle with this. There's also something that I think is great, and that's an ancient Hebrew prayer that basically says, Father, we thank you for this Scripture that we do not fully understand. For on the day that we do, that day will be great indeed. So with those things in our minds, the personal reality of wrestling with the difficult scripture and the intimacy of God's word, let's begin. Truth is, I have problems with this stuff all the time. I mean, God seems to have people killed multiple times in the Bible. It's rough when you read it. Not a lot of flannel graphs have this particular thing go down. Kathy and I were talking not too long ago about this topic in general. Like, how do you deal with, with God that does these things? How do you handle the stuff that seems to be so brutal at times, even in the world that we are living in? You know, for instance, there are more missionaries, there are more people in the world that have been martyred in our time than in all other time combined. Do you know that? There are more martyrs during our lifetimes than all the other martyrs of all time combined in the name of Jesus. It's a very personal, very real thing for us to be familiar with some of the most difficult pieces of Scripture. And this is definitely one. I, I was asking Kathy about it and I said, uh, I, I, whenever I have a really hard one, I go to the true theological source in our house. Um, and if our children are awake, I'll always ask Kathy, is what she wants me to say. So actually, that's not true. I always ask Kathy, I said, hey, um, how do you handle these hard scriptures? And I don't like them. She says, me neither. But I actually had a really powerful insight the last time that we were in Israel. I said, what was that? She said, well, it wasn't Israel. It was when we were in the Sinai. We spent a bunch of times in the Sinai doing some study and hiking mountains and doing this kind of stuff. And she said, and I, was, I was talking to God about the relationship that he had with these people and the things that they had to do and the things that they had to see. And I was struggling with it, really, honestly. I said, yeah, I know. I mean, this is the stuff that I don't like. I don't like reading that stuff. And she said, and, and, I, and I, was, I was going, I got some, a, a really clear picture of this. I said, okay, I'm begging you. Tell me what it is. And she said, listen, well, what, I was, what I did was I, I saw this jigsaw puzzle. I was like, Okay, we're going to talk in code now. All right, jigsaw puzzle. Um, great. Help me, because I'm slow. And she said, well, all my life I have thought of myself as the jigsaw puzzle. And what God showed me when I walked through these stories 
in his land was that I was only a piece of the puzzle. And I really didn't like where this was going. And she said, I had to come to the clear reality that the full puzzle is God's story. And that story is a story of love and of hope and of joy. But if my peace in that is to be laid aside or even to die so that that story might be told, then I'm okay with that. And I said, really? And she looked at me and smiled and said, on most days. I don't know that that fully answers those really hard questions. But it begins in me to say, how do we find ourselves in this larger story? Honestly, really. We're not going to be able to understand something well beyond us, but there is a larger story being told. Don't shy away from this. Don't turn the channel on this quite yet this morning. So I was studying it and I realized that something really is interesting about this. Is It seems that, that God is really, 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 really intense about one specific thing here and in multiple places. He's really, really intense about us not worshiping things that are not worth it. God is really very focused on us not worshiping things that are not worth it. So what are they? What are the things that we worship that are not worth it? Well, there's a bunch for me. I mean, it's hard, really hard for me not to uh, periodically stand in about 100,000 people um, singing the eyes of Texas and not feel my heart soar for the destruction of, well, this year for the experience of surviving till the end of the game. But it's hard for me not to think, you know, this, this sure feels close to, yikes, look at all the names on the bill. Wow, this is intense. Is this worship? I don't know. But it comes into my head. Sometimes I think, um, you know, the security that I have. Anything that kind of rocks the security of my family or my life, I just, whoa, I come right up at that. I mean, I will just about put anything aside to make sure that that is so. And I think, yikes. Do I worship the security that I have? Money? Position? Money? position. And then it gets worse when I start to think about the real difficult reality that the best definition of an idol, which God is looking to crush throughout Scripture over and over and over again, is anything that I love more than God. Anything that I love more than God. 
beautiful baby comes in the door over to my left. The very moment that I say something like that. As a parent of four, the father of four beautiful children, I'll be totally honest with you. There are times when it is easier and makes more sense to me to love my children more than anything else in the world. Just makes sense to me. But when I do that, I've made them idols. Worse than that, often, because of that prioritizing, I force them to behave like God. Loving me in such a way that I can be sustained. And when they don't, freaking out. Giving them so much responsibility over how I feel about myself. All of a sudden the idol begins to destroy. And a relationship that is supposed to be one of inheritance and power and hope becomes one of destruction and pain and over-focus. We have a problem with this. I went to a funeral not too long ago. And I know the intention of the heart. But someone got in front and said, her children were the most important thing in her life. The center of who she was. And I thought to myself, somehow that sounds like a compliment, but it's sticking in my throat. I don't want to get to the end of my life and have my children think that they were the end all of my life. I want us as a family to share that the story of love and reconciliation and hope and joy and power and restoration and and real power and strength are who we are. Because that will sustain them well beyond me and transform the world. It's not easy. And I know that's challenging. I only say it because it's so challenging to me. This is my own personal struggle. Maybe it's yours, maybe it's not. So, where have we, where have you, where have I, made it safe or okay or insulated to be wrong? Where have we made it okay to look at that stuff on TV or the internet? Where have we made it okay to say those words to our wife or our husband? Where have we made it okay to put that money here or do that deal in this way? Where have we made it okay that just because the law allows us to wiggle doesn't mean that God asks us to? Where have we made it okay in certain parts of our life to be wrong? Where have we hidden away idols? in the different corners of our lives. Don't we expect those, as it says right here, God's just powerfully saying, be careful of that. It's like planting dynamite in your life and just lighting the fuse and waiting for the erosion to come. Please don't do this. Very often we see these words out of God and we think God is this big angry God. Here's a surprise. He's not extraordinarily loving and in a very good mood this morning. Although most of the world won't know that. Tell your friends. 
And he loves us so much that like any decent parent who sees their child running toward the highway, please stop before you are publicly destroyed in a way that will crush me. Do not do this. In our smaller moments, we think God's just selfish. But if God is love and all-giving and forgiving and hope-filled, let's think about it this way. Take any of the things that you or I hold as idols hidden away in our hearts and make them the centerpiece of the entire world, bending its knee to your idol or mine. tragic world a small world regardless of the idol the only thing worship worthy is the God of love last piece is that there's this image of this that is important it says that how you're supposed to go about this terrible thing is to stone them which is the worst right Except this, what it says is, when you stone someone, you have to use your whole community to do so. In other words, it's not something that's done in private, and it's not something that's done impassioned. Deuteronomy 17, it actually comes around and gives you how this has to be proven out. It gets this detailing of two witnesses, and it has to be confessed to those two people, knowing that the death penalty is on the line. And so after a while, you start to think, wow, this stuff looks like it's really intense, and it's going to happen, and we get so overwhelmed with it. At the same time, God puts all these provisions in there to make sure that this thing is, well, there's no record that I can find outside of a handful actually in Scripture where these kinds of things come to pass. Just like the son that is Mara or bitter that the parents are supposed to same thing over and over and over it's not your house in your way in a secret it is public and the whole community must come and agree which makes me realize that so often we think that God has individual relationships with us but he doesn't Now, he has personal relationships with us, intimate ones, hairs on your head, days of your life, absolutely. But let's not get caught in thinking that that is an individual thing. Personal relationship and at the same time communal relationship. Look into Scripture and you will find that what God is doing over and over and over is speaking to groups of people through a few. It is always about the body, always about the community, always about the family, always about the group. We have gotten so interwoven in our country about individual whatevers that we forget that what God actually does is he speaks to us as a body. Do you know that when God looks down and he sees you or he sees me, what he sees is this body? You are a part of this community. If you are part of this community, then he looks down and he says, you are Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. You are Riverside. And for us, because we are family, it is both. Everything that happens there happens here. Everything that happens here happens there. All the darkness that happens out there is a part of you. And all the darkness that happens here is a part of us. And then it goes to the kingdom, the United Methodist Church, and well beyond. 
And these moments that actually say, be careful because what you do individually actually is connected communally. Anybody that's seen any real tragedy in your family knows that. There's never a time when one person's loss or brokenness doesn't affect the whole. Sometimes even generationally. So how in the world do we do it? Right? I mean, how in the world do we actually figure out how to root the stuff out? That we've made okay to be wrong. That maybe affecting our family eventually, if not now. How do we actually do this stuff? And I used to be the guy that was the five points of how to root out the idolic sin in your life. No more. Pulling up the bootstraps and really getting after the work is not going to work. It's not even a biblical way of doing this. You know how we do this? We actually ask for God to do it. We actually pray, Father in heaven... I am unable to give these things up. I need you, through your Spirit, to show me what they are and then help me find a way to lay them aside for you. I don't want to be anything but loving in that. And God doesn't want us to be anything but loving either. It's beautiful to me to think that when the heavens opened and God spoke, this is my Son, whom I love, in Him I am well pleased, that the heavens never closed again. In our smaller moments, we think God's just selfish. But if God is love and all-giving and forgiving and hope-filled, let's think about it this way. Take any of the things that you or I hold as idols hidden away in our hearts and make them the centerpiece of the entire world, bending its knee to your idol or mine. And that this morning, right now, that heaven is open and over us, and our prayers are heard, our hopes moved upon, so that we might become the people that we are created to be, Worshipping in a way that allows us to become just that. Overwhelmed by love. And joy. And so, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, truth is there are strongholds and idols and things we worship, ideas we worship, people we worship. Places we've kept things that are horrifying. We know it. We don't want them. We don't want to be those people. We're tired. So we would ask that you would send your spirit in love and clarity and joy into this place and into our hearts. And that you would just cast back any darkness. Fill us so much with your love that there is no room for anything else. Fill our homes, our churches, fill our communities, our city, our nation, and our world so deeply with your love that there is no room for anything else so that the world may know, be reconciled, and that the brokenness and tears that sometimes we feel are things of our distant past. Help us, step by step, 
and day by day to be your people. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Please join with me in our closing prayer.